Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 888. Coming up on this special edition of the show, Ben Clemens and Eric Longenhagen discuss prospects who could be called up by teams who may need a little help for the playoffs, particularly in the bullpen. Like, you know, when you walk into Best Buy or back when you could, there'd be that like $6 DVD bin. And it's like, oh yeah, bushwhacked with Daniel Stern for six bucks. I'll get this. And that's what Ryan Sheriff is. Following that, Jay Jaffe and Dan Zimborski discuss the Hall of Fame candidacy of Justin Verlander. His career has been impressive enough for Cooperstown consideration, but his recent injury means he may fall short of some milestones. Where Zips was originally projecting him before Tommy John surgery to finish at 265 wins on average, that's down to 238 wins. And that dropped that 300 win rate down to 4%. Wow. Because he's against the clock now. But first, Fangraphs Managing Editor Meg Rowley leads us off with a message for you, our listeners. And I will start recording. Hi there. Normally, this is when I would welcome a guest and have them say hello, but today it's just going to be me, Meg Rowley, at least for the next little stretch. As the listeners of the first 887 episodes of Fangraphs Audio have probably noticed, it has been a while. I've been on hiatus, and so is the show. I spent a good bit of the summer filling in for Sam Miller over on Effectively Wild, and while he has since resumed his co-co-hosting duties, we've divvied up our conversations with Ben Lindbergh a little more evenly, and that, coupled with my editorial and sometimes writing duties, meant that I didn't have time to do this show, at least not as well as it and you and Carson Sestouli's mustachioed legacy deserve. And so, we're going to take this opportunity to present to you the new Fangraphs audio, conceived of by the Fangraphs staff. It will still be ably produced by Dylan Higgins and feature a bit of the old Herb Alpert flavor, but rather than have a regular host, it'll rotate. It'll be a show of segments featuring the work and words and interests of our staff and contributors. Sometimes the segments will consist of monologues or interviews. Sometimes there'll be a lively debate or a deep discussion on a piece someone has written that week. Perhaps someone will choose to read a piece of fiction or poetry or do a longer reported segment. Some of the segments will be newsy, others more evergreen. Sometimes they'll feature the folks you read at the site every week. Sometimes they'll feature voices from beyond the site people who aren't technically our colleagues, but who we're lucky enough to call peers and pals in the industry. We hope that that format allows the show to grow and change with our staff and our readers' interests, and that it allows us to showcase a diversity of voices and a variety of perspectives, and that, most of all, it is fun and interesting to listen to. If the last couple of months have taught us anything, it's that baseball changes on you, and it helps to be nimble. So while this is the show we hope to do now, I am sure that it'll look very different in a few months, in cool ways that I can't yet anticipate. It has been a great pleasure to steward Fangraphs Audio for as long as I did, and I couldn't imagine a better bunch of baseball nerds to hand it over to than the folks I edit every day, who routinely teach me something new about the game and often do it with humor and wit. All of that is coming up, but first, it is my obligation to tell you one last time that Fangraphs memberships are now available at Fangraphs.com. For the monthly cost of £3 of Halloween candy, you can support all the great work at Fangraphs, including our roster resource tools and free agent tracker, the Zips projections for each game in the playoffs, and coverage of every single postseason game, from the first clash of the wildcard series to the last out of the World Series. You may also, for a slightly greater sum, purchase an ad-free membership, either for yourself or as a gift to someone else, and enjoy Fangraphs without banner ads, facilitating faster loading times. It really is the best way to support and experience the site. It's not an exaggeration to say that we wouldn't be here to relaunch this show or do anything else if it weren't for the generosity of our community. We truly thank you. With that bit of business being complete, I take you to a conversation between Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, and Ben Clemens, writer for Fangraphs, which begins right now. Hey, I'm Ben Clemens, writer at Fangraphs. I'm joined by Eric Longenhagen, the lead prospect analyst at Fangraphs. And today we are going to talk about some of the interesting prospects who could make a splash in this postseason, mainly as relief pitching, I believe. Right, Eric? Yeah, I think, you know, you and I both have interest in sort of optimal deployment, right? I guess you and I, the way we're naturally inclined to think of, think about it is when do you play this card out of your hand? What is the right time to do it? And so we are we are simpatico as far as like thinking about pitching and bullpen deployment in general. And the format of this year's postseason is so weirdly specific 
and new that there's right. There's like all this room for new fresh thinking about this season. How do you go about deploying these guys? And I know, I think it's what you've thought about recently in some of your writing, no doubt, like you've written about the altered postseason format a couple times in the last week. And I'm sitting here in the middle of writing my piece, which maybe will run before this podcast comes out. So hopefully if it has, people can go check that out where I'm looking at like the lower seeded teams who have a chance to make a deep playoff run. And so we've both been thinking about who has the horses to do this in a year where it matters in a way that is different than ever before. It's not like CC Sabathia can, can go on short rest twice a series without all these off days. Like it is just not possible for a singular horse to pull your cart. And so that's got us thinking about bullpens. And so, yeah, like specifically the way it overlaps with, with what I do is thinking about some of the prospects, some of the young guys, and many of them have come to the fore over the last two months for some of the teams that are now clearly contenders. I'm actually kind of curious from your perspective among some of these young rookie relievers who, aside from maybe reading about them, you've not seen before, who has who stuck out to you early on? Well, I guess not early on, but like so far in the last two months, who are the guys who you cut on a game and you're like, wow, this guy's impressive, can go high leverage innings in, in October perhaps? Yeah, I mean, number one there would probably be Pete Fairbanks, where you just watch him and you're like, oh, wow, that guy's really good. Yeah, it's interesting that you brought him up right off the bat. I guess I'd kind of forgotten that he was prospect eligible entering the season, but I suppose he had thrown so few innings yeah. at that point that he still was. And really when Tampa Bay acquired him, and that was the trade for Nick Solak, right? Like I think it was straight up Fairbanks for Solak. Yeah, we thought it was just a 40-man clearing move at the time. I think inarguably the Rays' 40-man situation made it more made them more comfortable with parting with Solak, who I put a 50 on. He was in the 100 no real position for him, but just a really excellent hitter who I think will play every day. But yeah, the the Rays made two trades last year where they acquired Fairbanks and Nick Anderson for guys who were on the top 100. And it really gave me like, I don't know, like a question of faith or at least of process where I'm like, am, am I valuing relievers wrong or am I overvaluing these two prospects individually? And I think that in the case of Sanchez, it was some of me not valuing the prospects correctly because of how aggressive he was. But I think right. there is some you know, years of control. Even though Fairbanks was 25 and a half at the time and had already had two Tommy Johns, he is a reliever with elite stuff who had several years of team control left. I think all six years of team control. And while relievers are inherently volatile... And this is a guy who's had multiple surgeries and towards the end of that team control is going to be in his early 30s. I guess I can understand how the Rays are thinking about it. But yeah, Fairbanks Fairbanks has been interesting to see used this year because they, they altered his release point a little bit to create more vertical action on his stuff. His release is a little bit higher. He was one of those guys who last year, and you've written about this recently as in regards to Dylan Cease. Yeah. And I alluded to it recently in regards to Patrick Sandoval with the Angels. That, you know, Fairbanks had a, an accidentally cutting fastball that was worse because it was cutting. It has been fixed to some extent. And now with Nick Anderson having been out for a while, he really rose to, he's, he's in my opinion, the second best relief pitcher in that bullpen. And they've actually taken to letting him open a little bit here lately. The second best reliever in that bullpen for now, because I don't know if you saw it, but they put Honeywell and McClanahan on their 40-man playoff pool. No, I had not seen that. Yeah, that has a chance no. to be very interesting. Yeah, it's fascinating to me, right, because the Rays have had so many injuries and they've had to go through that, like, you know, when you walk into Best Buy or back when you could, there'd be that like $6 DVD bin. And it's like, oh yeah, bushwhacked with Daniel Stern for six bucks. I'll get this. And that's what Ryan Sheriff is and John Curtis and Ryan Thompson, some of these guys, Aaron Slagers, and the Rays just had to operate in this space for a while because of all their injuries. And now that they're getting to a point where they can kind of freely, they're going to have to cut loose some of these guys anyway, as some of the 45-day IL types come, have to be put back on the 40-man this offseason. And that's a lot of guys, Jalen Beeks, Jose Alvarado, Andrew Kittredge, Colin Poche, Chaz Rowe, Yanni Torinos, like all these guys have to go back onto the 40-man this offseason. So a huge portion of the 
what I would classify as like look relievers, right? The funky Aaron right. Loop, Ryan Sheriff, Ryan Thompson types. They are just going to get lopped off the bottom of the roster and be freely available. And I do wonder, yeah, if like Shane McClanahan and Brent Honeywell might be unleashed in the playoffs and they just start cutting some of these guys sooner than later. Yeah. Yeah. I saw them on the playoff roster and Honeywell's already on the 40, so they don't even need to do anything there. McClanahan, they could add. And those guys would be electric arms. That's interesting. I wonder if McClanahan is there in case of continued injury. He was drafted so recently that he doesn't have to be put on the 40 for another couple of years, and it's very unlike the Rays to go ahead and and do something like that. But I guess if you're talking about adding a lefty who throws 100 to your bullpen, then maybe that consideration temporarily overrides your long-term thinking in in this instance. Yeah, I believe the way these roster rules work, you can wait until you get through the wildcard series and even the divisional series and say, oh, well, now that we're in the ALCS, we have a lot of championship leverage if we put this guy on our roster. This um, begs a question that I wish I had asked you offline as I started working on this sleeper, like Dark Horse postseason run post, is one of the things I've noticed about some of the, the better teams and some of the teams who I think deploy their bullpens correctly is that this year when guys like Nick Anderson or the, I don't know, for lack of a better term, the bullpen ace is being brought into games, it has much more often to just me anecdotally been against the two, three, four hitters against the top of the lineup. Even in a close game late, the Padres are bringing in Cal Quantrill to face seven, eight, nine hitters in a one run game late just because... You know, they felt that he is, they'd rather have the best guy in their bullpen, Emilio Pagan or Kirby Yates or whoever at that time, face the middle of the order. And I think this is absolutely something the Rays do where they they get Nick Anderson hot and deploy him against the opposing team's best hitters. Is this a thing that you have noticed as well? Is there a way that you'd be able to like look for this? Yes. So I've definitely noticed it. And while I have not definitively shown how much better it is, it's pretty clear that better pitchers suppress better hitters to a greater extent than they suppress bad hitters, if that makes sense. Yes. You really do want your best pitchers against their best hitters. Your best pitchers have more leverage if they're facing people who they can do more damage to, essentially, whose outcomes they can make worse by a greater margin. It doesn't really matter who you're throwing against Billy Hamilton. It matters a lot more who you're throwing against, say, Tatis. This principle has driven some of my thinking around the the playoff stuff is do you have a bench bat that you can plug in the bottom of your order late in games that can most punish your uh, opposing teams like worse relievers who they're trying to sneak by against your six, seven, eight, nine hitters. Right. And so like without derailing this conversation entirely, this is one of those categories of players like, oh, Daniel Vogelbach in Milwaukee, they can, he's been better since they've acquired him basically for free against a lousy right-handed pitcher late in the game to plug that guy in, even if it's for Orlando Arcia, like who cares, you know, worry about, take advantage of the fact that you might be able to do some damage with a guy now. I think that's going to be interesting to see. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And speaking of large men, (laughs) to make a quick, quick transition, Toronto's playing Alejandro Kirk, and Toronto also has some interesting pitching decisions to make in these playoffs. I looked through their roster for prospects who could make an impact, and they're all like, Hurt or bad? <laughs> They're all hurt. Yeah, like, if you would have asked me at the beginning of the season, hey, the Blue Jays are in the playoffs, what has to happen for them to have a chance of really doing some damage, pushing the team, you know, in this weird format in the second round? And I would have had to have told you that Julian Merriweather is a dude, some of the other young ish relievers who they've acquired via rule five or as pieces in these trades like Thomas Hatch and Ryan Barucki and you know Patrick Murphy would have right. to really emerge. Nate Pearson would absolutely have to shove Trent Thornton, Elvis Luciano, who's not a prospect anymore, but is barely 20 years old. Like a bunch of these guys would have to bubble to the surface and instead most of them are hurt. And it seems for a little bit as though a couple of them were bubbling to the surface. Julian Merriweather was really excellent when he first came up. Jordan Romano added like five miles per hour or something like that to his slider and just had a velo bump in general in a way that I think was relevant. And yeah, as we've got come down the stretch here, a bunch of them, I'm looking at the roster resource page now and it's like Yenzi Diaz is hurt. 
Elvis Luciano is hurt. Nate Pearson, Trent Thornton. Ken Giles needs Tommy John. Julian Merriweather, Jordan Romano. Jacob Wagisbeck. Yeah, if you need to look for a prospect name there, I guess it's Anthony Kay, who has been fine. And you have a 45 on him, I believe. He's a lefty. He was the return in the Marcus Stroman trade. And he's been okay in the majors. We think he'll be okay going forward. But he's not the kind of high-impact bullpen arm we're talking about when we're looking at the Rays. Right. I still dig Thomas Hatch long-term. He's another guy I've got a 45 on, which is not crazy far from the back of the top 100, like the Jose Urquidy types of starters who I have at the at the back of the top 100, Tristan McKenzie. They're not all that far from someone like Tom Hatch, who's been right. used in the bullpen this year as they've broken him in. But as good as Hyunjin Ryu has been, and you know, you'd like some of the Robbie Ray acquisition, Taiwan Walker acquisition, you'd like the Blue Jays to be rewarded for this. I don't think they have the the horses really to, to win some of these coin flip games. I don't think that they are going to like give themselves the best chance of, of doing it. And then the other team in that division, I mean, obviously the Yankees bullpen has Araldis Chapman and Zach Britton and Chad Green and lots of big name like arms with hellacious stuff. Jonathan right. Loisiga is another one. You know, they've got Nick Nelson. They've got Michael King. I do think that there's a chance that pitchers like, like that bear some, uh, I guess, a little bit more importance this season than, than typically because in a five-game series in that second round of the playoffs where you have no days off, right? having someone eat four, five innings out of the bullpen in a blowout game, whether or not you're winning or losing, to save your bullpen from the next day or for the next couple days, I guess, I think that could be a, a big, big deal. Jonathan Loesiga coming in, it would not surprise anyone who's watched him pitch. You know, that guy's got three plus pitches, but he's got like 30 control. Right. And so to have that guy come in, if you're down by five and it's the sixth inning and you're the Yankees, bringing someone like Michael King in, I think is a much, much better idea than Johnny Lasagna because he might walk three guys, throw 40 pitches over an inning and a third, and then you got to bring somebody else in where I just think someone like Michael King is more likely to eat three plus innings and save your staff. So there's not, as far as the, the impact arms in New York are concerned, a lot of them are well-established veterans. But I do think there's a chance that some of these young prospects, quote unquote, make it a difference. Do you think Miguel Yehure has a role to play in the Yankees pen? Yeah, I think, you know, he, in the brief big league stint he's had this year, just, you know, all of five innings, he's been a little bit walk prone. But historically, this is exactly the type of guy who I'm talking about. It's like fastball cutter, curveball changeup, pretty evenly distributed, pitchability righty, very advanced for someone who's 22. Could absolutely come in and, and do what, you know, this is sticking out in my mind for obvious reasons, but like what Jay Happ did for the Phillies in 2008, like come out of the bullpen, save the rest of the guys by throwing five or six strong innings. You lost the game, you got blown out, whatever. But that second round where you're playing those five games, you know, consecutive days, I think someone like this could be very important, especially compared to, to typical years. Now, of the AL Central teams, the one that I think is most obviously at the top with like these prospecty arms is Chicago. Yeah, they have a lot. Right. Cody Hoyer. We saw Garrett Crochet debut over the weekend, throwing 100 miles an hour. That was, that was, he was their first round pick from this past draft in June. Matt Foster's had a velo bump. Who else? Like Stever. Yeah, Jonathan Stever's come up and sort of patched like a three to four inning hole in the rotation. Dane Dunning's not in the bullpen, but is still prospect eligible and has come up and been a stabilizing force in a rotation that has dealt with wildness and cease and injuries and wildness in Gio Gonzalez at one point, Carlos Rodon, Reynaldo Lopez. And so, yeah, like this is the team where I've written about it a couple times recently. These young guys, I think, are going to carry them. I think this is the most dangerous bullpen in the playoffs. I think this is the group that I'm, if I'm going to bet on, it's, it's this group. Yeah, as I looked through the names that they could throw into the back of their pen, it just keeps going. We didn't even mention Zach Birdie yet. And while he hasn't right. been great this year, he throws hard. Foster's been excellent for them. They just have a, a wall of relievers that can throw any problems. So I'm very bullish about the White Sox uh, in the next couple of weeks. I guess the Twins, you know, the Twins are interesting too because they have also picked some of these guys off the scrap heap, like Caleb Thielbar, and put them sort of in the back to middle of the bullpen. Even Matt Whistler for a while was kind of hopping around. And they do some interesting stuff with 
with their pen too, where Tyler Duffy is changing his position on the rubber, depending on the handedness of the hitter. I wrote about it, I like I guess I mentioned it in the AL Central Big League Prospect update last week that Jorge Alcala, who was part of the Ryan Presley return from Houston, uh, along with Gilberto Celestino, who's actually the better prospect of the two. But Jorge Alcala, they've gotten to throw his slider more and added a changeup. And so he was always this frustrating, hard-throwing guy who, you know, like the Astros have done this a lot over the last five years where they've got Teoscar Hernandez or Derek Mitchell types or David Paulino. They can't quite crack the Astros roster, which has been very good. And so they trade them away. And some of those guys have become dudes. And so I'm watching Alcala now because that added change up in the increased slider usage seemed to have meant like stock up for him. And then Cody Stashak is also prospect eligible still in that bullpen, even though he's 26. Perhaps the most reliable strike throwing reliever in all the playoffs. Do you think there's any chance we see Duran? I wonder because, you know, I'm always kind of hovering my cursor over the player search bar on the site right. to see what's going on. And I have seen his name pop up and I have seen Edward Cabrera's name pop up uh, with the Marlins. And I and I do wonder if, if we might see Duran. It's, yeah, so Duran has been in their 60-man player pool. He's been in their alternate site throwing. He has not appeared in the majors yet. And I don't believe he's on the 40-man. But that is not a huge bar to using him. And... You know, he's a he's a real prospect. You have a yeah. fifty on him. He's a, yep. he's a seventy fastball. I assume he'll eventually be a starter, but as a high impact bullpen arm to come in, that's that's the kind of guy you'd like to see if you're the twins and you're a little bit worried about the depth of your pen. It's interesting that you mention Duran and like we met had a casual Colin Poche mention earlier on in the pod because at one point I forget what trade it was where Tampa Bay ended up getting a player to be named later from Arizona became Colin Poche, but shortly before that deal was finalized and Poche was sent from Arizona to Tampa Bay, there were several Rays scouts at a Duran start on the backfields in Scottsdale. And so I thought for sure that he was going to be the guy. It's interesting that Arizona seems to have been okay with the idea of losing him via trade multiple times and then did ultimately when they traded him to Minnesota. He's a little bit different now like than he was with Arizona. He was wispy. He was already throwing hard with Arizona, but was, you know, that, that typical young early 20s projectable build with limited feel for his secondary stuff. There was a chance he could have become a reliever based on the strike throwing at that point. But yeah, since he arrived in Minnesota, both the secondary pitches and their the consistency with which he executes them has improved. He's really filled out. He did have a little bit of a velo bump and gosh, I, you know, I, yeah, you mentioned that I've got a 70 on the fastball. I forget exactly what the range was, although I'm headed over to the board right now to check it out. You got him at 95.99 and topping 101. So that's pretty good. Yeah. And so that's, that's based on the data that I sourced from the 2019 season doing the prospect lists. So that is basically his 10th percentile fastball velocity and his 90th percentile fastball velocity create the range. And then the hardest one that was captured on a TrackMan unit last year was 101, which is why that's on the board as tops. So that's basically how I put that together. That is the kind of arm that you'd like to be able to bring in. Right. It's Francisco Rodriguez. Like, which one of these young guys is Francisco Rodriguez is, is the question. Exactly. And I think he, of the names who I looked at who aren't already in the majors, I mean, you know, Pete Fairbanks, we mentioned, James Karinczak is theoretically still a prospect. Those guys are already great relievers. I think Duran has one of the best chances of being that guy who has not yet been in the majors. Yeah, you mentioned Karinczak with Cleveland, who, because of the way rookie eligibility works, and because of the truncated season that we have had in 2020, he is probably going to finish pretty high. He won't win it, right? Because Luis Robert and Kyle Lewis have both been better. But he'll finish high in the Rookie of the Year voting this season. And he'll be eligible next year because he hasn't exhausted rookie eligibility. He hasn't thrown enough innings. And there just weren't enough pre-September roster days this year for him to exhaust it by those means. He theoretically could be highly voted Rookie of the Year guy in two consecutive seasons. Yeah, they have some guys behind him as well. Not quite the explosive pitches that Karen Jack has, but, you know, Scott Moss, Cal Quantrill, who's definitely going to be in the pen, I believe. Yeah. They're not short for young, good arms. 
like Cleveland approach the way they approached their 60 man player pool, I thought was interesting because they were fine with having a bunch of their young, like teenagers in the pool, Daniel Espino and Ethan Hankins. This is the group that and Emmanuel Class A, by the way, not in the bullpen. Although are we gonna he suspended from the postseason, right? Because it was PEDs. Yes. Ah, oh, bummer. <laughs> they have other guys who are interesting. Right, yeah, like, but yeah, you, we mentioned Karen Chak. Cam Hill is the other guy in the bullpen who is still prospect eligible, who has interesting stuff. Sam Hentges. 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 Yep. Who is on their 69 player pool, tops 99, is a lefty. That's another guy who you could see in the playoffs without too much surprise. He's not quite the uh, the command guy you'd like in right. a reliever, but he's lefty and throws 99. You have him, you have Anthony Ghost, who is not technically a prospect anymore because he exhausted rookie eligibility as an outfielder in the days of yore, but he's now converted to the mound and is also upper 90s lefty with a plus breaking ball and just hasn't been able to develop consistent command. Hasn't pitched in the big leagues all year, but is in the player pool. And then Nick Sandlin is Southern Miss. Like, if you go look at Nick Sandlin's college numbers, you'd be like, how did this guy last to the second round of the draft. Like, why was this guy an underslot bonus in the second round? And it's because he's one of those, like, Byung Hyun Kim style, like, submarine pitchers who pretty much everybody projected in relief. But I think he's really interesting. And yeah, it would be fun to see any of those guys that we've mentioned throughout the AL Central pushed to some sort of playoff role. Yeah. Now, the AL West, where we'll round out this quick look through the AL rookie pitchers who might make an impact in the postseason doesn't quite have the same juice that the Central does. I struggled looking through the A's to figure out who I would be impressed by in the playoffs. Yeah, I guess with Oakland, the thing that's interesting is the way Jake Diekman's slider has improved this year. Then you've got Jordan Weems, who's a converted outfielder who's in their bullpen, who's throwing really, really hard, and that's about it. But yeah, poor Oakland has just had has had many injuries. James Caprellian was up for a little bit this year, and he seemed to be back throwing hard after he has had many injuries, but that's in a relief capacity. I wonder what they'll end up doing with him. Yeah, they could theoretically use Holmes as well. Right, yeah, he or, or Grant Holmes, but I feel as though, based on what I've seen from those guys, I would just be more apt to let Petit and Diekman and Wendelkin and Trevino yeah. go at it. Like, I, I think Grant Holmes... Grant Holmes' command has always been pretty lax. I, I don't anticipate they would throw him into the playoffs without yeah. having any real big league experience. Dalton Jeffries threw two innings this year, walked two. That's not really what you're hoping for. It's Houston that I think has, you know, no Verlander. So Christian Javier, Jose Urquidy, and then Framber Valdez, who's almost 27, but is, has, is having sort of a breakout year, are going to be big parts of their rotation and some shape or form. And Noli Paredes and Luis Garcia, I think, are the two young guns in the bullpen who might be able to provide what I mentioned earlier, where it's either a mix of high leverage or multi-inning performances. Both those guys have experienced piggybacking starts in the minors. So I think they're especially well-suited to to do either the high leverage stuff because of how good their stuff is, or pitch right. multiple innings and save the bullpen for the next day. I think they may use Bielak that way as well. Yeah, has Bielak been better lately? Have I? He was he pitching last not, night. He has not been better lately. Yeah, I watched him a little bit last night, and still, you know, he's spiking breaking balls and just really what he was in college, and then through most of his tenure in the minors, which was like a strike throwing fourth fifth starter type. Seemed totally stable. It was like a low-variance version of that. And then has gotten to the big leagues and cannot throw strikes to save his life. But I was looking at his pitch heat maps. He's locating the stuff where you'd expect a guy would want to, right? It's like cutters and sliders to his glove side, just off the plate. Change-ups, especially his change-up location, has been consistently good, just if you're looking at his charts. But yeah, he's, not, he's walking a lot of guys. Yeah, and then I guess Blake Taylor is theoretically a prospect name who will almost definitely be on their postseason roster. He's appeared in 20 games this year, but it's not going to wow you in the way the other guys were mentioning here are. Yeah, and I think in the NL, Devin Williams has had a, an ascent this year after several years of injuries that impacted his prospect value and ranking and all that. He's got one of the best changeups in all of baseball now. He and Drew Rasmussen 
And even Justin Topa, who's still technically a prospect, but he's 29. He's he's a rookie. He throws really hard. His slider has a ridiculous amount of horizontal movement. I saw him in the spring, and at that time he was just throwing hard. But now his slider seems to be better. I wonder if they've changed his delivery. I really have to go back and look and see if it has changed. But he's someone whose slider, I bet, Ben, you if you looked at baseball savant, you'd be like, huh, isn't this guy on uh, any of Eric's lists? And I think that this offseason he's going to be, even though he's about to be 30 years old. Yeah, that might be a reason why. Uh, there's one guy who is on your list, so I'm very curious about seeing in these playoffs, and that's Braylon Marquez. Yeah, do you think that? Have you seen? Are they gonna? Are they gonna do it? I've I mentioned it a couple weeks ago that barring basically barring them doing it, that I just don't think that the Cubs bullpen is good enough to to get them very far. Yeah, so Braylon Marquez, Cubs prospect. He is 21. He has an absolutely explosive fastball. He's a big lefty, 6'4", and what do you think? He he could be, again, Francisco Rodriguez, like pretty easily. Right, yeah. He and Karen Chak were back-to-back on the top 100 because even though Marquez is several years younger than Karen Chak, I do anticipate a bullpen role for him long-term. Now, the folks in the industry who have pushed back against that are the types who have told me that no... His delivery is synced better now than it was when you were watching him in the AZL, which was a lot. Like the Cubs, you know, the Cubs are 10 minutes from my house, their complex in Mesa. And so I see their AZL cats a lot. And I saw Marquez a whole bunch during his first couple years in, in the pros. And I was just like, this is a reliever. No one really throws like this. And they like the Cubs folks and people who have seen him more recently than I, who think he can start are just like, no, this delivery is synced up better now. He's throwing strikes. The secondary stuff, especially the breaking ball is going to play by virtue of the fact that it is so hard, even though it is not like a tight, yeah. nasty, like Garrett Cole style breaking ball. So there are people who think he's ultimately going to be a starter, but I still have him in that elite reliever bucket on the top 100. But yeah, it's it's absolutely possible. Yeah. This year, he's not going to be a starter for them in the playoffs. And I think that if the Cubs are being realistic about their long-term chances of competing in different years, you have to think they like their chances a lot better this year than they do in 2025, say, which might be a year of control that you're giving up on Marquez if you use him now. I think that they would be well-suited to kind of supercharge their pen by going with a guy who throws 100 from the left side, when otherwise they would just have some kind of back of the bullpen arm there. No, I agree with you. I think it's going to be interesting to see what they do. I think it'll be interesting to see what Atlanta does, considering the injuries that they have had and the way some of the highly regarded prospects in that system have failed to ascend into any sort of role. You've got the Kyle Wrights and Tuki Toussaint's of the world who now appear best suited for a bullpen role. They are post-prospect at this point, but, you know, Huescar Enoa is no All these guys have to start for them, though. They're so devastated on the starting front. Yeah, so I I think that Atlanta, even though they've basically been in control of the NL East for most of the season, are sort of paper tigers as we enter the playoffs in part because their their pitching staff is so thin and volatile. And I think the same goes for Philly. If Philly finds a way to sneak in here, which they're currently in position to do, I mean, this has been ad nauseum, I'm sure, on Philly Talk Radio. Everybody from back home who I've spoken with maligns the bullpen. Jojo Romero has been a stabilizing force crushes a Red Bull against his forearm and then sprints in from the bullpen. He's an absolute maniac on the mound and I think one of their better relievers now, but he alone I don't think is going to be sufficient to stabilize a bullpen that has also dealt with a lot of injuries. David Robertson, Sir Anthony Dominguez. What do you think about San Francisco? A scout texted me a couple weeks ago and was like, watch out for the Giants. They are sneaky. And I do think top to bottom, their lineup has more depth than collectively we give them credit for, like the royal media we, I guess. Right. Certainly me. And I think that of the teams that have that big bopper on the bench that I was speaking about, having Darren Ruff or Austin Slater or Daniel Robertson or Brandon Belt or Alex Dickerson come off the bench in a big spot, I do think is valuable. They don't really have any rookies, but I'm, I'm kind of curious what you think about their their staff and, and their bullpen. It's like really difficult to look at some of these guys and imagine how this team has been as competitive as they have been this year. Caleb Berger, I like. He's a pop-up guy to some extent. Sean Anderson was a prospect of yeah, repute. No longer really eligible. Not eligible anymore, but yeah. Is there anybody in that bullpen who you look at and you're like, this is... Whether they're prospect or not, this is a real late inning weapon. Yeah, so the Giants bullpen 
again, it doesn't have any prospects. When I was looking through for who I wanted to talk about here, I wrote Rico Garcia with a question mark, and I think that's probably a no. But they do have some interesting arms. I think Carly Garcia is interesting. I mean, Tony Watson is just good, right? He's about as far from a prospect as you can be, but all he does every year is be pretty good. And if they have a weakness, it's definitely their bullpen. They're very short of bullpen arms. And like you said, the lineup is what's most interesting about them. I don't really see them as a postseason team, but if they are, it's going to be because a lot of these bullpen arms who we think of as just okay have done better than expected. So, you know, Watson and Garcia are two of them, but Sam Coonrod has actually been, you know, deceptively okay under the surface, even though his stats have been abysmal, and he'll, they'll probably need him to be a lot better than just okay and get some real innings out of him if they're going to get anywhere in the playoffs, I think. With that, I think we are going to call it a day for today. We're both really looking forward to these playoffs, both to see a lot of exciting pitchers we haven't seen in the majors before, and also because we're going to see a playoff format we've never seen before. So we'll be back next week to talk about what has most impressed us in these wildcard rounds, and also probably to talk about the teams that just missed the playoffs and what went wrong there. Hey folks, I'm Jay Jaffe. Welcome to the first of what I hope will be an ongoing series of podcast segments devoted to the kind of Hall of Fame related topics that I so often feature in my work at Fangraphs, as well as my previous stops at Sports Illustrated and Baseball Prospectus, not to mention my book, The Cooperstown Casebook. Even when we're outside voting season, as so often happens, players who are in the news for one reason or another catch my eye in a way that makes sense for me to weigh in on the progress they're making towards the Hall, while also touching upon other issues in baseball. In the past week or so, a couple of Astros have been in the news, or at least in the headlines at Fangraphs, namely Justin Verlander, who we found out this past weekend will undergo Tommy John surgery and miss all the 2021 season after having not started since opening day, and Jose Altuve, who's limping to the finish line of what has been a dreadful replacement level age 30 season. I wrote about Verlander on Monday, September 21st, while fellow Fangraphs senior writer Dan Zimborski wrote about Altuve on September 18th. Dan provided Zips projections for both players that helped to illustrate the kind of performance downturns that both may be facing, and the extent to which their shots at some big milestones that would probably guarantee their elections to Cooperstown have taken a hit. I thought the pair would make for an interesting conversation between the two of us, and I think that while both of us have done a zillion podcasts and radio spots over the course of our careers, and appeared in some game-related chats here at Fangraphs, this might be the first time that we've gotten to have a one-on-one conversation for the masses. So hello, Dan. Hey, Jay. How's it going today? That's good. So far, I think we've gotten through this part with flying colors, and uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, uh, we're we're having a better time than Justin Verlander is, <laughs> to say the least. Also, also Altuve. I, I imagine it's uh, not a lot of fun right now in that Houston clubhouse. See, I mean, we could have warned him about you know the the downside of approaching forty because things just start hurting and they don't stop hurting. Just a little while ago, I made the mistake of standing up and my knee hurts. So it's it's, it's been an adventure. <laughs> Aging is an adventure. Yeah, I actually started my Verlander Verlander piece with, you know, getting old is for the birds and just reeled off like all the injuries that Verlander has suffered this year, going back to his his triceps issue and then his groin and then the forearm strain. And I think I wrote about most of those myself. I've written probably about Verlander more often than any other player. But uh, as somebody who just reached the uh, round number milestone of 50, I'm all too aware of uh, the ravages of age, so to speak. I think with with Verlander, it's it's been interesting uh, watching him this season because we got one game from him, if I'm not mistaken, and we we mostly hear about his injuries, his groin surgery, his forearm, now Tommy John. It's been just a disastrous season for him, and you can argue for the Astros too, even if they're you know going to make the playoffs. Right. Well, we'll get to that here. I'm a member of the BBWA, and I'm about to, uh, this winter, get my Hall of Fame voting ballot for the first time. I know you're a BBWA member as well, and, and you do a lot of thinking about the Hall of Fame. How far are you from getting your own ballot? I'm only halfway there. It, it took me a while to ask because I didn't want to ask and then get turned down and, and, right. and destroy my self-confidence. Hmm. Uh, but Jeff Passan kind of convinced me to stop being a wimp and, and ask, and I, I, I still have five years to go now, so... It's going to be a stretch, so long as we get our service time for this year. Right, right. I think we, I, I think we do. Uh, I actually went to the ballpark uh, for the first time last week uh, up to Yankee Stadium and, and felt like like I had at least you know gotten my gotten my foot there and you know made made sure that this season I did not go unrepresented at the ballpark. So, turning to turning back to Verlander here, where do you stand on him as a potential Hall of Famer? Has he already done enough to earn your vote? You'll have a ballot by the time he gets eligible. Where do, where do you stand? For me, he, he does. I think he his both his career and his career peak 
so to speak, are above above beyond past that threshold, however you describe it. I, I'm not a small guy. I'm a consistent hall guy. And I right. think that that we are too stingy generally uh, these days with pictures. I mean, 300 wins has never really been the standard for Hall of Fame elections. Uh, I, I think that, that it took me seeing so long that Kevin Brown was one and outed. I, I think we, we're inducting too not enough pictures. I think Verlander is going to get in. And if he's in for me, I, I, I'm pretty sure that, that he's in for the, for the larger group. Right. Okay. Was there a point that you became convinced? Like, okay, this is, I've, I've seen what I need to see. There's no question in my mind now I'll vote for this guy. I probably would have even before he got to the Astros, but mm-hmm. I think it's the Astros seasons that put him over the top. Uh, with with some of the player or some of the voters who aren't quite as stat focused as as you or I may be, uh, because he he built that additional almost storyline on top of it. And sometimes when you have a guy who is under two hundred and fifty wins, which is probably where he's going to end up at this point, you don't have that same storyline. And you so they 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 want to have that reason to push him over the top, which is why you might not see a Kevin Brown who is also not particularly liked. I I think that. Verlander has made his case convincingly to the hobby. I mean, he can't speak for everyone, but I think he's made that case at this point. Right. Okay. For me, I think the needle really moved in late 2018 when he reached that 200th win, and I wrote about it at Fangraphs. Not that I care a whole lot about wins. <laughs> you know, we've got better stats to measure pitcher performance and value, but that's basically become the threshold at which modern pitchers land on the Hall of Fame radar. To repeat some of the research that, I, that I've given here to give you listeners some background, from 1992 through 2010, Hall of Fame voters didn't elect a single starter with fewer than 300 wins. But since they finally elected Bly Levin, who was uh, one of my pet causes, uh, you know, in, in introducing Jaws to the masses and, you know, one of the early success stories in, in my coverage and advocacy, we've seen a small handful go in, starting with Pedro Martinez and John Smoltz in 2015, Jack Morris, somebody who I argued against for a long time, and I know you did too, Dan, <laughs> uh, in 2018, and then uh, Mike Messina and Roy Halladay last year, uh, the latter of whom finished with just 203 wins. Of course, when it comes to my vote, I turn to Jaws, the Jaffe War Score System, which for those of you new to this conversation is a wins above replacement based tool using the baseball reference version of war to compare players to those at their positions who are already in the Hall of Fame based on career and peak performances, which I define peak as a player's best seven seasons. What Verlander has done since that two-year period in 2014 and 15, when it appeared he was heading into his decline phase, uh, is pretty remarkable. He averaged seven war over the next four seasons, finished second in the Cy Young voting twice, got traded, finally won the World Series ring in his third trip to the World Series. Then last year, struck out 300 hitters and reached 3,000 for his career, both of those in the same game, which I thought was really cool. Tossed his third no-hitter and nearly won another World Series. So in doing all that, he retook the Jaws lead from Zach Greinke among active pitchers uh, and is now exactly at the peak standard of 50 war. Uh, in my mind, in that span of a year, he went from a likely candidate to a slam dunk. He's now 33rd in Jaws, just 0.7 points below the standard. So that, for me, I think just really, you know, I think closed the loophole. Yeah, when when you when you talk about Hall of Fame pictures, you can say you can set your line at a point where Justin Verlander doesn't get into the Hall of Fame, but you're only going to have maybe you know 20, 25 guys who are obviously better than Verlander. And if that's your hall, I mean, I guess more power to you, but it it wouldn't be, you know, consistent with historical standards for, for induction. As again, I think he's met those I think he should be in, even if he never plays another game. And oddly, he he'll probably get some leeway for that simply because injuries at the end of the career tend to tend to factor into the case. Voters seem to be, you know, more forgiving of a player who was injured at the end of their career. Right. It's kind of the Sandy Koufax clause. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me that Verlander right now has just shy of 3000 innings and, and uh, Pedro didn't get there. Halliday didn't get there. You know, when I was doing the book, I used 3000 innings as my cutoff for rankings when it came to ERA and ERA plus and and uh so you know some other metrics but he's just shy of that he's got kind of the what i would call the the short career exception in that you know by getting to 200 wins by getting to where he did with uh, with war and jaws you know he's already over that line even without reaching 3000 but getting back to my reason for why i reached out to you initially is uh heading into the season it looked like he had a reasonable chance at getting to the really big milestone traditional milestones 300 wins, 4,000 strikeouts, the latter of which is something only Nolan Ryan, Randy Johnson, Roger Clemens, and Steve Carlton have reached. 
But after making his opening day start, he went down with the injuries, which we discussed. And, you know, your projections, I think, illustrate just the long-term ramifications. And so I wanted to ask you, can you summarize what you found in terms of what his next few seasons look like, both before and after? Well, well, coming into the 2020 season, when we still were talking about a normal year before, you know, all this happened, Zips projected him to have a 32% chance of one in three shot at 300 wins. That doesn't sound like a lot to some, but the fact is 300 wins is a difficult threshold and no one's really an even even or better to, to hit 300 wins until they're like right at 300 wins. Right. It's, just, it's just the nature of, of being a picture. Pictures break. If there had been no 2020 season, that would have dropped down to 14%, still second best behind Clayton Kershaw, who would lose a smaller percentage of his career if there was a lost season. But with the season that we had and the injury, it's it's not good for his probabilities, let's just say. Where Zips was originally projecting him before Tommy John surgery to finish at 265 wins on average, that's down to 238 wins. And that dropped that 300 win rate down to 4% Wow! because he's against the clock now. Even if he's good when he comes back, you don't see a lot of pitchers pitching at 44, 45, 46, unless they're Jamie Moyer. And he, he just needs more help in, in that case. It's just, you can outperform expectations. It's hard to outrace a clock. Right. Yeah. You know, I know so Verlander's 37 now. He's about to be a free agent and not looking at pitching competitively again until eight, his age 39 season. He said he'd like to pitch to 45, which is about the age that those guys I mentioned who reached 4,000 strikeouts stuck around till, give or take a year. Did you run any scenarios with Zips where he does stick around to 45? I didn't run it to 45. I did run an extra year or two. Mm -hmm. But the uncertainty that we have for a player in his late 30s having Tommy John surgery and essentially missing two seasons Zips is very uncertain about how good he'll be when, when he comes back. And so you really never get to the point where you can just keep extending his age out and he gets a significant boost to his 300 win probability added. At this point, I mean, the way he has to do it is he has to come back and he has to almost instantly be a star again. And that that's tricky for, for any picture. Now, he's he's come back, quote unquote, from the dead before. I was surprised if you go back to, you know, 2014, 2015, that he's gotten this far because it didn't look great with the Tigers at the end of that stint. Right. Any Trevor Bauer conspiracy theory aside. <laughs> but this is an even tougher comeback, I think, than the first one. So he's got a lot going against him. Right. I think it's pretty remarkable that here we are in 2020. We're almost almost 50 years past the first Tommy John surgery. And the only pitcher who's undergone Tommy John en route to the Hall of Fame is John Smoltz. Verlander's at least five years away if he never threw another pitch, and he could be the second unless Billy Wagner's support rallies for about 32% over his final five years on the ballot. When you do your projections, do they show a steeper falloff for pitchers post-TJ than if they miss time for another injury, like a knee injury or a back injury? Well, generally speaking, the rate of recovery from Tommy John surgeries long-term is pretty good. Most pitchers do get back to most of near where they used to be. I think the trick is that with... Hall of Fame induction right now for pitchers being so quantity focused rather than quality mm -hmm. focused, as you can see, if you look at, at the Johan Santana case, that missing a year or two, just losing those bulk numbers has a significant negative effect on your career. Because if you just add two years, if you could take Johan Santana and add two years back to his career, give him 40 more wins. I don't think he's, he gets in at 180 wins, but I think that he gets taken more seriously than he actually did. Right. I think a lot of it is just the loss of those bulk numbers. Yeah, I think that that's a good way of looking at it. And I think you probably framed that better than I have, at least in my times uh, writing about it in print. So you think that, you know, that this is going to be something that could derail a guy like Chris Sale, who's further away as far as a Hall of Fame resume? Or do you think that younger guys tend to come back stronger uh, from TJ? Younger guys, I mean, they do they do come back stronger. I mean, it's not good in a way because it derails more of a prime year. Right. But, I mean, if we were talking a shoulder injury, on the other hand, Zips would be very, very negative about it. But at this point, I mean, Tommy John does seem to be dependable and elbows seem to be a lot, I wouldn't say easy, but they're easier to deal with than shoulder injuries. Right. So you have a classification system when you put injuries into Zips? Yeah, Zips can only look at injuries in you know, a very general way because you don't have a lot of individualized data on right. injuries. Uh, you don't know details or any kind of stats about 
the condition of someone's tendons or elbows. Uh, so zips can look at large categories, Tommy John surgeries, leg injuries. It can look at how long a player is out with those injuries, and it can make general assumptions based on the history of, of those kinds of injuries. But there's going to be a lot of uncertainty, and I think that's not just a projection thing. Anyone not using projections will have a lot of uncertainty through an injured picture because we're not at the part of our technological advances where you know, we're printing out tendons out of graphene <laughs> and replacing rotator cuffs similarly. But, I mean, it would be fun if we were at that, but we don't have that yet. So where do you think Verlander fits among the pitchers who are over 30 in terms of Hall of Fame cases? I'm thinking mainly about Zach Greinke, Clayton Kershaw, Max Scherzer. If they suddenly retired at the end of this season, would any of them have your vote? I think they probably would. I I would have to consider Granky, but he's probably he's he's near there. I haven't probably thought of Granky in that in that way yet, uh, the way I have Scherzer. Scherzer would be in for me based on peak, but I'm mm-hmm. again someone who's more willing to induct a player based on peak. I absolutely would have voted for Johan Santana. I know I keep bringing him up, but he's right. kind of the the best recent example of, of that kind of injury shortened career picture who was at the top of the league. Yeah, I get that. You know, people have asked me uh, about Jacob deGrom recently because, you know, he looks like he is probably the odds on favorite to win a third Cy Young. And yet, you know, he got such a late starter in his career that it's going to be impossible for him to compile the kind of numbers that I think we traditionally expect from Hall of Fame pitchers. You know, and he's already got a TJ in the bank from his college days. So if he get if he has to undergo another one, you know, that could that could be a serious blow given, you know, how We've seen the way guys come back from their second one. So that's probably a conversation for another day. In fact, it's certainly a conversation for another day. (laughs) I think we have actually probably exhausted our time here for this segment, and we will have to get to Jose Altuve for our next podcast segment here. But do you have any other thoughts on Verlander as far as uh, this this stuff is concerned? What's interesting is that his injury has essentially moved his outlook back to where it was with the Tigers before his last comeback. If I look at his projections entering the 2015 season, Zips had him down at 237 wins. So he clawed back about 30, 40 wins, depending on the year uh, in, in recent seasons. At that point, he was only projected to finish seventh among active players. Wow. Okay. And some of those players that didn't work out as well, Felix Hernandez, Madison Bumgarner, although Clayton Kershaw still up there. But now with the injury, he's, he kind of has a similar outlook to where it was in Detroit in, in a way. Huh. That's really interesting. I hadn't really thought of that, but you've obviously got the, the Zips toy to play with and, and can do a lot of stuff that doesn't necessarily need to reach publication. But uh, that's uh, that's pretty fascinating. All right. Well, I think that's uh, that's about enough for our first foray into this. Uh, Dan, thanks for joining me today. And we're going to continue our discussion on Jose Altuve and probably bring back another note or two about Verlander for our next segment here. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. I'm Jay Jaffe. That will do it for episode 888 of Fangraphs Audio. If you enjoyed the show, tell your friends, or consider a membership. Like Meg said at the top of the show, it is truly the support of all of you that allows us to keep doing what we do, and we are endlessly grateful. We will return with another episode next week. Until then, thank you for listening.